0: This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. This is, Thought is On Why Belief. Today's topic is sensational seeds. A man scattered seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Though he does not know how, those words of Jesus, Mark 4, 26, to 27, are still true today. As a trained plant scientist myself, I can vouch that, despite the many thousands of man-hours of ongoing research devoted to studying seeds, Seed germination and seedling growth, we still don't really know in detail how it is possible. Certainly no one has been able to build anything that can do what a seed does. The scientific journals are full of research papers with detailed descriptions of some of the many intricate processes going on in and around the seed as it sprouts and grows. But just how it happens all by itself remains a marvel. As Jesus went on to say, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Mark 4 verse twenty eight In each of those grains is another seed like its parent, which the farmer can sow when it's plant in time or seed in time. Genesis 8 verse twenty two once more repeating the sowing, growing, harvesting cycle all over again. It's amazing to think how the information and in miniature machinery needed to produce an entire plant is compressed into such a small package. There's a little energy store, too known as the endosperm, to enable the germinating seed to firstly send down roots that both anchor the seedling into the ground and act as foraging conduits of water and nutrients. And then secondly to erect solar energy panels, the leaves of course, to power the growing plant once the seed store of energy has been depleted. Imagine the instructions and equipment needed to build and operate a self-maintaining and environmentally friendly solar energy capturing system, photosynthesis, inside every seed. For decades now, top solar energy engineers have been striving to mimic the way plants convert sunlight into fuel, but they've got a long way to go yet. In fact, scientists have not yet fully described all that happens in photosynthesis, let alone been able to duplicate it. So, if such highly intelligent minds are thus challenged, what does it say about the one who not only designed the incredibly complex chemistry behind photosynthesis, but somehow equipped it, tiny seats with their own ready-to-build DIY solar energy kit, complete with instructions for sourcing component parts and ongoing maintenance. Yet there are those who would deny the hand of the creator in this, instead proclaiming that evolution did it. Really, they have no excuse, Romans 1, verse 20, for ignoring the incredible design inherent in every seed. And, as every home gardener with a vegetable patch knows, when you plant peas, you get peas, right in line with God having pre-programmed them that way on day three of creation week when he commanded the earth to bring forth vegetation, like plants yielding seed each according to its own kind, Genesis 1, verse 11 to 12. When the wheat seeds sown by farmers today at planting time subsequently sprout and grow, they give rise to wheat, not lilies or thistles or poison ivy. If wheat didn't produce according to its kind, the wheat farmers would soon be out of business. Thankfully, our God is a God of order, not of confusion or disorder. First Corinthians 14, verse 33a. As we can witness for ourselves every seed time and harvest. Turning cabbage seed into cauliflower. While each kind of plant bears seeds according to its kind, we should not view modern-day species as the kinds that God created on day three of Creation Week. For example, turnips (Brassica rapa) and cabbages (Brassica oleracea) have been given different species names, yet belong to the same created kind, the Brassica family, evidenced by the fact that planting the two close together produces some seeds of sweet or rutabaga (Brassica napus). Similarly, planting turnips and black mustard, Prasica nigra, together give some ni- seeds of brown mustard, Brassica juncea. Those who refuse to believe that God created plants often cite such variation as evidence of, for evolution, but in reality it demonstrates the inbuilt variation within a created kind, the result of reshuffling of previously existing genes, not the evolution of new ones. And note there is a limit to such variation in the capacity to hybridize. You could plant turnips and mangoes together at nausim, but you will never get any seeds of a hybrid mangnip or turn-go. We should note here that some of the variation we see in the Brassica family today is the result of deterioration from a once-perfect creation that is now in bondage to decay. Romans 8 verse 19 to 22 As a consequence of the first man disobeying God. Genesis 3. For example, cauliflower is a cabbage but with enlarged clusters of deformed flowers, which stay white because they are covered by leaves. The enlarged deformed green leaves of broccoli, which do not have covering leaves, mutations as would be expected from copying errors, have destroyed some of the original genetic information. In stark contrast to evolutionists hope that mutations could have brought about the increase in genetic information that microbe to man evolution requires. In fact, some mutations have destroyed the genetic information that codes for seeds themselves. We see such seedlessness in commercial varieties of bananas, some citrus fruit, and selected table grapes. These varieties survive because men, seeing seedlessness as a desirable trait, propagates these varieties vegetatively. Without seeds, like when one plants potato pieces to get more potatoes. The cost of fruit production can be higher for seedless varieties, however. Chemicals normally released by the developing seeds which promote fruit enlargement have to be sprayed manually onto certain seedless grapes in order to achieve acceptable fruit size and yield. Useful to men Without seeds, where would we be? Just from the perspective of the fruit value alone, we'd probably be a lot hungrier. For example, the seeds of wheat, rice, corn, barley, rye, and oats are our primary source of calories today, and the various types of beans are a major source of protein. Growing them sure takes a lot of work too, with millions and millions of acres planted to all those crops every year. It wasn't always that way, however. The first two people initially didn't have the back-breaking labor of tilling the soil to get their food, Instead they could get all the nourishment they needed by simply plucking fruit from garden trees Genesis 2, verse fifteen to sixteen. But one of the consequences of the first man's sin was that they could no longer rely on being tree crop horticulturists, but had to diversify into field crops agriculture with the associated sweat by their brow that would entail Genesis three verse seventeen to nineteen. Perhaps some people might be wondering, but if the first people were agriculturalists, what happened to the Stone Age? The answer is, there never was a Stone Age. In the oft-promoted evolutionary sense that primitive hunter-gathering preceded agriculture, nor was there a Bronze Age or Iron Age, for that matter. From the beginning there were people who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Genesis 4 verse 22. So how did hunter-gatherer peoples arise? At some point those people evidently stopped practicing agriculture, and it's highly probable that in many cases the sudden non-availability of seeds of agricultural species was a factor in them turning to hunter-gathering for sustenance. Even some evolutionists are coming to recognize this. For example, the hunter-gatherer Malbury people of Thailand were said by evolutionary anthropologists to have descended unchanged from the Stone Age, that is, until DNA and linguistic studies showed them to be descendants of Thailand's Tin Prai people who grow crops. It turns out that the Tin Prai people have a legend that several hundred years ago, they banished a young boy and girl from their community, sending them downriver on a raft. Somewhere downstream, the boy and girl managed to escape into the jungle, but without any crop seeds, they of course had to turn their hand to whatever they could find in the jungle for survival. This one boy and one girl were the ancestors of the Malawi tribe, with their descendants having no option but to continue the hunter gatherer tradition until presented with the opportunity to re back into Thai society, which is now happening today. The case of the Malabri, along with studies of other hunter-gatherer peoples in the Pacific, has led to evolutionary anthropologists conceding, Contemporary hunter-gatherer groups cannot be automatically assumed to represent the pre-agricultural lifestyle of human populations, descended unchanged from the Stone Age. Recognizing the incredible value and importance of seeds to our society, Many people have moved to establish various seed collections around the world in an effort to secure our food supply. For example, in two thousand six the Norwegian government began constructing a doomsday seed bank near the town of Longyearbyen only seven hundred miles, a thousand hundred kilometers from the North Pole, with the prime ministers of five Nordic countries gathering for the occasion. The seed vault in the frozen underground in the side of a rocky mountain will contain up to 3 million seeds. The authorities hope that the combination of low temperature and storage in aluminum foil to keep out moisture will keep the seeds viable for many hundreds of years. However, that is probably wishful thinking, as the vast majority of plant seeds cannot be stored for more than 40 years without losing germination vigor. Seed arcs highlight a logicality of evolutionary dogma. As farmers adopted varieties bred by plant breeders, they abandoned the old traditional varieties and many of these are now only preserved in the seed banks. Those abandoned varieties have genes in them that are missing from the modern highly selected varieties often grown in huge areas. Monoculture, as I have pointed out, selection causes loss of genetic information. For example, if you select wheat for short Stems. then you are eliminating genes that result in long stems. Wild wheat will have genes for both, resulting in a mixture of plants of variable height, which does not make such plants suitable for mechanical harvesting. Everyone agrees that loss of genetic diversity is a bad thing because it is the source of possibly important future genetic information for the breeding of plants, such as breeding for disease resistance or nutritional characteristics that are not currently appreciated. But if all the genetic information in plants arose by accidental changes, mutations over billions of years, without any intelligent input, the usual evolutionary dogma, then surely intelligent scientists, with all their accumulated knowledge, can create a few genes here and there. Well, no. In spite of the phenomenal advance of scientific knowledge, it is beyond the ability of scientists to invent new functional genes just yet to confer disease resistance, for example. In spite of all the combined intelligence of scientists, they cannot yet invent or create the biological information needed for disease resistance or drought tolerance in plants, for example. But the evolutionists among them expect us to believe that the same information that they cannot create just arose somehow by blind natural processes without any intelligence whatsoever. It is not terribly logical. Interestingly, despite the declining knowledge of the Bible in many Western societies today, the influence of Christianity is such that seed banks are still referred to by many as seed arks, in obvious parallel to the account of Noah and the ark-born animals that were saved from the global cataclysm of Genesis 6-9. How did seed survive the flood? It's possible that many plant species did not survive the Genesis flood, as there are quite a few plant fossil species found in sedimentary rock strata laid down during the flood, which are not known to grow anywhere today. Their disappearance and thus the loss of the nutritional value as food might partially explain why God permitted man to eat meat after the flood. Genesis 9 verse 3 but clearly many plants did survive the flood, as today we enjoy the beauty and value as sources of oil, food, fibres, spices and beverages. A large proportion of would have survived through their seeds. Many terrestrial seeds can survive long periods of soaking in various concentrations of salt water, something that Charles Darwin observed. Indeed, salt water impedes the germination of some species so that the seed lasts better in salt water than fresh water. Also, some seeds do not imbibe water at all unless the hard outer seed coat, testa, is first weakened, scarified, maybe by a bushfire. Some seeds could have survived the genesis flood in the stomachs of the bloated, floating carcasses of dead herbivores. Other plants could have survived in floating vegetation masses or in pumice, which floats from the volcanic activity. Pieces of many plants are capable of asexual sprouting and later go on to produce seeds. The olive leaf brought back to Noah by the dove shows that plants were regenerating well before Noah and company left the ark after 371 days on board. Many seeds have devices for attaching themselves to the fur of animals and some could have survived the flood on board the ark by this means. Of course, Noah took food on board the ark prior to the flood Genesis And that could have included many seeds. Perhaps some seed found its way aboard as accidental inclusions in food stores. But most was surely intentionally loaded, with Noah likely to have kept some aside as planting material for their crops after the flood. After the flood, it seems Noah planted a vineyard before even building his house. Genesis 9 verse 20 to 21. In line with the later biblical advice, Proverbs 24 to verse 27, to finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready, after that build your house. I remember as an agricultural science undergraduate at university being taught that the origin of many crop plants can be traced back to the Fertile Crescent, the strip of land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East. As a Christian, I can now see that this fits exactly with the historical account of Genesis, The Bible refers to that area as being the plain of Shinar, which is where the Tower of Babel was built. This was the place from which God scattered the post-flood people by confusing their language. Genesis 10, verse 1 to 11, and verse 9. So the various types of crop seed that Noah carried on board the ark were carefully husbanded after the flood, having been brought down from the ark's landing site on the mountains of Ararat. Genesis 8, verse 4. Those crop species and varieties were used by successive generations settling on the plain of Shinar. With the dispersal from Babel, one can understand that particular families, according to their languages, would have taken their respective farming expertise and seed resources with them as they spread out, thus helping us to make sense of the post-flood distribution of cropping plants around the world. Other ways that seeds get around Water, animals, and men are not the only seed dispersal agents. Winged seeds can remain airborne long enough to fall quite some way from the parent tree, blown by the wind. Then the light seeds, parachute-like pappus, can keep them aloft for hours, during which time they can be blown very long distances indeed. But the role played by birds in seed dispersal is surely the most remarkable. The digestive acids in a bird's stomach are just right for weakening the seed coat of many seeds, like cherries, which otherwise pass undigested out the back door of flying birds, conveniently surrounded by a nutrient-rich dollop of natural fertilizer. The digestive acids in a bird's stomach are just right for weakening the seed coat of many seeds, like cherries, which otherwise pass undigested out the back door of flying birds, conveniently surrounded by a nutrient-rich dollop of natural fertilizer. Thus, if this seed parcel lands in a suitable location, it's ready to germinate and grow right away. A great many seeds are distributed and propagated in this manner. However, some seeds like those of the pinyon pine have only a very thin seed coat and are readily digested by birds that eat them, such as the pinyon jay, which just adores eating pinyon pine seeds, though so there is no leftover plantable pit to be dropped from the birds thereafter, yet the pinyon jay plays a crucial role in the propagating pinyon pines. How so? The birds eat wheat- How so? The birds eat what seeds they immediately need to in order to survive and then bury the surplus in the soil for future needs. One study reported that from September through to January in a pinion pine forest near the Grand Canyon, a flock of 250 pinion jays buried about 4.5 million pinion seeds. And they don't just bury them anywhere. They tend to select sites in open areas near fallen trees. When winter comes, the jays harvest many of their carefully hidden pinion seeds but it seems they've been programmed to hide more seeds in the soil than they can subsequently eat. Hence, the remaining seeds are in just the right place to sprout and grow, becoming the next generation of pinion pines. Such a nicely balanced ecological arrangement surely fits better with the kind of system-ordered harmony God originally designed into his good creation than with evolutionary ideas about ecology. In fact, a el- ecologi- In fact, ecological. In fact, ecologists have had to rethink their theories of ecological succession in light of recent observations of plant colonization of bare land areas. For example, at Mount St. Helens, the devastated landscape soon showed both pioneer and climax species growing side by side. And on the island of Surtsey, formed by volcanic eruption in the 1960s, evolutionary biologists were surprised to find that it was not the expected And on the island of Circe, formed by volcanic eruption in the 1960s, evolutionary biologists were surprised to find that it was not the expected lichens and mosses which were the early invaders, but flowering plants. At both Mount St. Helens and Circe, not only did the evolutionary way of thinking fail to predict what happened, but evolutionists greatly underestimated the innate resistance of the creation to see denuded areas. That's probably not surprising, given that their evolutionary history of our plant proposes Moses and Lichens as the first granary to colonize the earth, many millions of years after its alleged molten beginning. In contrast, if ecologists could take note of the Bible's teaching, which is both useful Second Timothy 3, verse 16, and wisdom imparting, Psalm 19, verse 7b, they'd have a framework which makes much more sense of the world's granary. They'd see that all plant kinds were created together on day three of creation week, and that the earth had a watery, not molten beginning. Also, that from the account of the Genesis flood, there's no reason to expect that mosses and lichens would be the first to colonize newly exposed ground. Genesis 8, verse 11. Moral and Spiritual Lessons Using Seeds We began by quoting Jesus' word from Mark 4, verse 26b to 28, about a sprouting seed. Jesus was actually using this as an example of what the kingdom of God is like, and that after a time of growth there will be a harvest of souls. In fact, seeds are used in scripture many other times, too, as a way of getting across important moral and spiritual matters. Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6 verse 7 just as it is an inescapable principle that a man harvests according to the kind of seed he plants, so too with his actions toward others. The Apostle Paul also uses seeds imagery The Apostle Paul also used seeds imagery in first Corinthians three verse six. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gives the increase. The mustard seed featured in two of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God Matthew thirteen verse thirty one to thirty two and one's faith Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus also used seeds to teach about the sons of the kingdom compared to the sons of the evil one and what will happen to them. Matthew 24 to thirty and thirty six to forty three. But surely the best known reference to seeds in Jesus' teaching is the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verse 1 to 9. Such is its fame that it has even given rise to this popular saying amongst gardeners, which, though very practical advice, was not the application intended by Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 18 to 23. One for the rock, one for the crow, one to die, and one to grow. Probably the most deeply spiritual of Jesus' lessons using seeds was in John 12, verse 23 to 24 where he spoke of the necessity of his own death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. With implications, verse 25, for how his disciples were to regard their own lives too. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Apostle Paul later revisited the theme of the seed dying, as we reassured his as readers of the certainty of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 to 38. But some may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed. Perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it the body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. And continued in first Corinthians fifteen, verse forty two to forty four. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body; it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. These reassuring words of Paul are true because the Creator of seeds Himself became the promised seed spoken of in Genesis three, verse fifteen, through whose sacrifice we who believe, though in Adam we die, can through faith in Him be made alive. First Corinthians fifteen, verse twenty-two. He, of course, is Jesus, our Creator. Lord and Savior, the greatest seed of all. This was Lies on Why Belief. I will see you same time, same place next week. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.